Now, I'd like this morning to return to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 14 to 29. If you're visiting with us today, uh, you might have gathered by now that this is a passage, uh, this is a book, book of Hebrews that we've been looking at for quite a while now. We're, we're nearly, we're almost at the penultimate uh, stages of this study, uh, looking at the book of Hebrews, which was written uh, to early uh, Christians who were of Jewish origin. Uh, who were struggling with persecution, with uh, opposition, and with the thought of giving up the Christian faith. They were tempted to give up and return to their roots in Judaism and uh, reject the Christ that they had embraced. Uh, And so this book, Under God, has been given to... The theme is, Christ is much better. Really, that's the theme of the whole book, as you will, I hope, have gathered if you've been coming every week. Christ is much better. So it's a focus on why Jesus is much better, why he's the only redeemer, and why uh, he supersedes uh, all that uh, went before him, uh, although that was preparing for him in the Old Testament. And there's uh, usually what I've done, what I've usually done in this, in this series is I've usually taken the chunks uh, that we have uh, before us uh, that are given in the, the Bible that we're using. You know, uh, each section is divided out so that we read today from verse 14, warning against refusing God is the headline that we've got there. Uh, and that's just the, the kind of dividing chunks that's been uh, put there by the, the, those who translated the NIV. Uh, usually they're pretty good and they're pretty helpful because it's usually a change of theme. But actually this one's not that great a division and I probably shouldn't have divided it at this point because really through from verse 14 to verse 17 uh, is connected with the previous section which we looked at last week which was given these two great pictures of running the race uh, and uh, understanding the Father's love and discipline in our lives. So I'm going to continue just for a little bit with this picture of running the race. So there's two pictures today. Okay, so there's more pictures. Lots of pi- pictures are good. So the first picture is, is a, the same picture as one of the pictures last week, which is running the race, seeing the Christian race, uh, seeing the Christian life as a race. So it's, and really, I would entitle this first bit as running on the flat. Okay, running on the flat. So running on the flat. That's easy. You can grasp that. Running on the flat. And the second bit is really about is a different picture. It's a moving from a moving picture to a standstill picture. So the second bit is really about uh, standing on the rock. So, okay, you just need to use your imagination and you need to remember that the Bible uses lots of different illustrations. This, this one, one of them is running and one of them is standing still. And we take different things from each of them about the Christian life. If you remember last week on verse 12... It finished, therefore strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so the lame may not be disabled but rather uh, healed. And this talking about running the Christian race and uh, being able to run on the flat. And uh, it's about living out the Christian life, living out the life of grace, following the instructions and the commands that God gives. Remember last week we, we talked about stripping off all the things that entangle us and how you, you don't have distractions if you're an athlete and all these kind of things. Well, this is just a further application of that. And it really stems from the pictures that come with me. Come with me. We'll go to Isaiah. If you can find Isaiah chapter 40, okay, right in the middle of the Old Testament, that's great. 
prophet who prophesied about the coming of Jesus. Okay, in Isaiah chapter 40, uh, when he speaks about the coming Messiah, it's on page 724, uh, Isaiah 40, and we've got this great picture of uh, the highway of our God. You know, that the, John the Baptist would come and he'd prepare a way for the Lord. And he said that in the coming of the Lord, every valley will be raised up, every mountain hill will be made low, the rough ground shall become plain and the uh, level, and the rugged places are plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And that's a picture of the coming of Jesus and how he would make this Christian road uh, to walk on towards heaven. He would make it possible. And he would bring down the impossible mountains and raise up the impossible valleys. And then it goes on at the end of that chapter to have these great words that have become very famous. Uh, about Speaking about this Messiah who will come, the Lord, the creator of heavens. He will not grow tired or weary. His understanding no one can fathom. That's just exactly the same words that we saw last week about growing tired and weary. He will give strength to the weary, increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary. The young men stumble and fall. Those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not be weary. They will walk and not faint. So you've got these lovely pictures of the the impossibility of living the Christian life being made possible by grace, by what God does for us. And so it's about traveling today. We're talking for a moment, about for a few moments, about traveling the Christian road. We're kind of dissidents, that's what we are. We're dissidents in society. We're walking a different way to everyone else. We're travelers. We're passing through. And we're, this is about how we can run this race or walk the Christian walk and not be weary. And it's about following Christ and living the life of grace with Himself. And there's four very practical implications, okay, that I'm going to speak about briefly and then look briefly at standing on the rock. Okay, there's four applications that we come into the section that we read from 14 to 18. Very simple ones. In other words, what I'm saying is here, when we struggle to walk the Christian walk, Sometimes it's because the level, the place isn't level. And he's saying, if you follow my ways and rely on my truth and depend on my strength, then it will be easier to walk the Christian walk. I will make these places uh, level for you. And so it's very practical. And he says in the first place, it's about living at peace. Make every effort to live in peace with all people and then to be holy. So it's about living at peace. The Christian message is that we have found our peace with God through Jesus, okay? That we're no longer um, in a position where we are condemned by God or we are in a, 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 a dispeace with God. But we've found peace and reconciliation through what Jesus has done. So we're friends with God and there's a peace. We talk about a peace in our hearts. And this is the practical outworking of that. It's saying, don't just leave that peace you have with God in your hearts, but make it start to uh, impact uh, the life that you live so that uh, fallouts and grumpiness and aggression and separation and holding grudges and not forgiving people will make the Christian road very difficult for us. It will not make the road flat. Now that's tough, you know, that's difficult. It's difficult, particularly maybe in a secular world in which we live, which isn't interested in the gospel, and uh, who maybe are very aggressive against our belief and our faith in Jesus Christ. We are asked not to retaliate uh, in the same way, but to live as much as is possible with us, as it says in Romans, to live at peace with all men. Sometimes that will not be possible. 
but to display grace and courage and forgiveness in our relationships wherever we are as you go from here today, in your workplace or or your neighborhood or your home, uh, whatever. In the world that we live in, uh, that can be tough, but he wants us to live at peace by the power of the Spirit. And also in the church, in the congregation in St. Columbus here, and those of you are visiting from whatever church you happen to belong to, if you do so. It's often that we, in church, isn't it? It's a bit like the house. You know, when we get into the house, we often let the guard go down. And we're nice and good Christians in the world and uh, where we're around other people. But in the home, we sometimes let our guard down. And we're not really that much living at peace. There's friction and tension in our marriages, in our, with our families, in our homes. And somehow we just don't think Jesus applies to that. And that can, it can be like that in the church. In the place where of all places it should be that we display the peace of Christ with one another. We can be selfish and short and judgmental and expect everyone else to be at peace with us, but us not to be at peace with them. We can be divided. We can be in cliques. We can find fault so easily. And we're not at peace. We're not working out this practical truth. We love the thought of being at peace with God, but the hard graft of needing the Spirit of God to change our hearts so that we're at peace with one another is something we're not so comfortable with that. But if we're living that way within the church or within our homes and we're not applying the peace of God to our relationships, then we'll find the Christian life really tough. It'll not be a level path for our feet. It'll be a real struggle and a real difficulty. If we're comfortable at being nasty and mean and divided and gossiping and finding fault with others and not being at peace then we will struggle to ask the Holy Spirit into our hearts to change us. So living at peace is a practical outworking of walking in the, the Christian road, as is living in holiness. You know, make every effort to live at peace with all men and to be holy. So that's the kind of balance to the peace idea. It's not just peace at all costs. It's peace as well as living um, s- separate to God, living uh, reflecting God as much as we can, living in obedience to God. Um, And that sometimes will bring tensions and divisions into the world in which we live. But as far as is possible with us, as we live holy lives, live peaceable lives. The great thing about these challenges or these words are that they drive us to Jesus Christ because we need him to change our desires and uh, our longings so that we live a life of grace which is a life of holiness. Sometimes the two are put as mutually exclusive. Sometimes, oh, it's all about love and it's all about grace. And then holiness is all just about kind of obedience and uh, outward things. It's not. The two are not mutually exclusive. The two come. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commands because he's good and he is perfect and he is God. And so the two go together and the obedience, if it doesn't stem from a heart of love, then that does become legalistic for us. But if we're going to live our Christian lives in disobedience to God and not allowing him to be holy, or not allowing him, sorry, to be Lord of our lives, then we will also make the Christian walk very difficult. It will be like walking or running a marathon with big heavy weights on our ankles or with a big woolly duffel coat on. You know, you're making that race really difficult by choosing not to follow him and not to allow him to free us up to walk this 
road. It's a level path. As we say no to our own sinful desires in our lives, a selfishness or a pride, and say yes to him and his way of loving service and grace, then we will find in a humble spirit that that level place is becoming an easier place to live and walk our Christian life. So there's about uh, practically living at peace, living in holiness. Thirdly, it's about living out of grace. Fifteen, see to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root causes it grows up to cause trouble and defile many. This is relentlessly practical. This is not about sitting on clouds. This is not about theological fine-tuning that is irrelevant to day-to-day living. It's about grace at work. It's about our God caring enough about us in our Christian walk to make the level path for us to walk this way for him. In his grace, following him, dependent on him. It's living out grace. Have you ever tried to untangle uh, a big ball of wool or a string that's all knotted? The only thing I can compare it to was at Christmas time, when every year, every year we've got two sets of Christmas lights. And I know it's very inappropriate, we're coming into springtime. Two sets of really big Christmas lights, and they're all wired together. And every year, I take them off the tree, hugely carefully, fold them away, so there's no tanglements. And every year, when I get back to them, uh, to put them back on, they're completely in a tangle. What happens? Is there a Christmas light tangler that goes around the world and tangles them all up during the year when nobody's looking? I don't know because I put them away and they're all absolutely ready to just go back in the tree. And then when I open the bag, they're completely knotted. And it takes at least seven hours <laughs> to get it back. By which time you want to strip the tree of every blade of green in it and throw it out and burn the lot. Okay, so I'm sawing my own failure there. But you know what it's like. How difficult it is to unknot these things. That's what our hearts are like. Knotted and gnarled and selfish and greedy and it's all intertwined. And grace comes in and begins to change that. And begins to loosen our hearts. And begins to enable his love to flow through our hearts so that we live life to the full. The sin that's in our hearts constricts the growth and constricts the freedom and constricts the life that God intended for us. And grace's job is tough. It's to come in and change us. Not change everybody else, but change us. And the great physician is at work when he gives us these practical outworkings of grace so that we don't just leave it in theoretical living and we don't just apply it to everyone else but we look at what he needs to do what he wants to do in our own heart so he says you know don't miss out the grace of God and allow that knotted bitter root to uh, strangle your heart because bitterness is a desperately strangling and damaging emotion and uh, characteristic and so his grace comes in and it begin, his love for us begins to say, I'm not going to leave you like this. I don't want you to be like this. I want you to be free from bitterness 
and selfishness and greed and pride. And I forgive you. I want to do this. This is my task. This is my creative role for you is to, to uh, redeem what sin has come and made ugly and dark and black. And Christ says, allow bitterness, allow grace into your heart so that bitterness does, isn't enthroned. Because what did bitterness do? It destroys our relationship with everyone else, doesn't it? But it also destroys our own heart. It's a desperately horrible, ugly thing if we enthrone it, if we're unforgiving, wanting to receive God's grace for all the things we've done, but never willing to give it out to others. It can be ambitious, it can be ignorant, it can be destructive, it can be self-pitying. And bitterness lingers always with Judas. It never makes it to the cross. Bitterness never makes it to the cross where there's forgiveness. It always lingers in the self-pity of Judas who denied his saviour and who from self-pity couldn't accept the forgiveness of God in his life. And it will, if you, if, you mean, if you hold on to bitterness, it will make the Christian race miserable for you. If you think everyone else needs to change, and if I think everyone else needs to change and not me and my heart, then we will find that we don't truly know the freedom that Christ wants to give. What's this all about? It's about Christ being much better. Fixing your eyes on Jesus. Have you memorized chapter 12, verses 1 to 12? I think that would be a great thing for us to do, if we could, because it just summarizes the whole of our Christian life and what we need to remember. So living out grace, it's about dealing with this tangled knot of Christmas lights in our own heart. And allowing God to work. And sometimes that can be painful, you know. You know when the great physicians at work can be painful. But it's a healing pain. He's wanting to take and dissemble and deconstruct our hearts in order to reconstruct them for his glory in in a whole way. And that, that needs humility, doesn't it? It needs to say, Lord, please do this because I need it. And I need you to do that because I can't do it myself. We can't deconstruct and, and break down all the sins and the bitternesses and the angers that are in our own hearts. We need him to do that. So that will make the level place, our Christian life, a level place. Do you, do you feel it's like a mountain? Do you feel you're just going up and you never survive, never keep going? Follow his practical outworkings of grace. This is not about working out, it's not about earning your salvation. He's done that for you. You're redeemed. You're absolutely full and free and forgiven. But it's about sanctification. It's about living out our Christian life. It's about working out our salvation with fear and trembling because he's at work in us. Let him work. So the third thing is living out. The last thing is living with purity in this section. Um, uh, See to it, none of you is sexually immoral or as godless like Esau who for a single meal sold his inheritance right as the oldest son. And I'm going to say more about this tonight, because tonight we're looking at the seventh commandment, which is you shall not commit adultery. So I'm going to spend a little bit more time on purity and morality this evening. But really what he's saying here is he's talking about um, using the example of Esau, who allowed his human appetite, his physical appetite for food, uh, to uh, absolutely dictate his de- desires and his behavior and Uh, all that he did so that he he lost what was promised to him because he was just hungry. So it was about allowing his appetite simply to rule him, to to govern him and not allow truth and and the Lord to do so. And um, that 
relates also to our attitude to, to sexual immorality and, and to morality as a whole. And in the, in the light of this, this passage, remember it's written to a people who are together, a community of believers. And he's reminding them saying sexual immorality within the community is absolutely destructive because it breaks that fundamental law of faithfulness to one another. And to faith and the, the protection of the, the, the marriage bond. And it begins to, again, see people as objects rather than as people. And it's, it's usually all about ourselves. And it's been the ruination of many a Christian community throughout the ages. Is a, a, a carelessness with regard to what says, God says about how we treat ourselves and how we treat our bodies and how we treat uh, his gift of sex to us, which I will look at a bit more this evening. It's about the desires behind our hearts and about our love for community and love for one another. If we, again, if we ignore the moral imperatives of God's word for us as believers, the Christian life will become a mountain, an impossible mountain for us to climb. Uh, because we will be slaves to our own desires. Absolutely, we'll have no self-control, which is a, a fruit of the Holy Spirit. And we will lose our joy climbing up. And he wants us to have a level path on which to live the Christian life. So these are four very practical, very everyday ones that I need to apply to myself and you will apply to yourself in your Christian Life that will enable us as we follow his directions by his grace with his strength. And you know, most of all, and we'll see a bit more of this tonight, as we will come in him and confess our need and confess our failure and our struggle with that. And as we do all of that, we will find joy comes back into our Christian lives and strength and courage. And it wouldn't seem quite like the great mountain that it often appears to us as we depend on him. I'm not. It's not an easy believism. It's not a careless uh, disregard for the realities and the battles and the struggles people have. But as a general rule, we see uh, that God is enabling us, even in the most difficult of circumstances, to live for him, even in the battles and the struggles that we face. So that is running on the flat. And briefly, uh, before we close, the second section is reminding us to stand on the rock that is Jesus Christ. What's the theme of Hebrews? Christ is much better. It happens again and again and again. We see it again and again. It says Christ is much better. And so here he compares Christ and Christ on Mount Zion. He uses two mountains, as it were, as an illustration. And he compares it with the revelation of God in the Old Testament, which is absolutely necessary, absolutely important, but isn't the final revelation of God. It needed to be given, but what we have in Christ is better than what was revealed on Mount Sinai. And that's the theme of this book. And all that it represents. You know, it's beautiful, isn't it? Verses 22 to 24. What have you come to? You come to the heaven of Jerusalem, city of the living God, thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You've come to God, the judge of all men, the spirit of... You know, it's a great kind of... Uh, avalanche, a cavalcade of descriptions of who we've come to in Jesus Christ and that he is a great God and that Christ is a great Christ and these Jewish believers don't want to throw back onto legalism and into ritual but boldly move forward into relationship with Christ that there's a great future in heaven there's life with him, there's a joyful community to belong to 
failed and fallen, so we often are, but one day we won't be. And there's the belonging eternally with him. There's forgiveness. There's this blood of Christ that speaks of justice, but also speaks of forgiveness and speaks of commitment and speaks of redemption and speaks of hope and speaks of a future and speaks of sacrifice and speaks of substitution, that he came and did it all in our place and he satisfied divine justice. It speaks about being chosen, about belonging in that way. And it speaks about the future and the finish being guaranteed, not just up to ourselves. So he gives this great sort of uh, avalanche of, uh, of encouragement to remember who we have come to. We've come to Jesus Christ. You know, you've come, verse 24, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. That's why we believe in the New Testament and the covenant. And it's, it says clearly in verses 18 to 21 that uh, it's better than Sinai. It's better than what God displayed of himself on the Mount of Sinai where he gave the Ten Commandments. Even though that was absolutely necessary. Even though that was an outworking, as we'll see tonight, of the character of God that drives us to Christ as it pointed to Christ. And even though all the Old Testament believers were were saved by grace and by faith as well, it's still uh, in its... uh, declaration of God it is a recognition that we can't come to God by following the law we can't come to God by our own obedience the law of God that was given in the Old Testament just highlighted exposed that we needed a saviour that we needed someone greater than ourselves Uh, it, it was God's revealed failure of the law to bring us salvation and it points us to the one who alone can fulfill the law on our behalf that is Jesus Christ it exposes our this picture of the Old Testament God exposes our guilt exposes his justice and it says absolutely that he is a just God and he is absolutely right in what he does and that's what the blood of Abel speaks of Abel was Uh, the brother of Cain who was murdered and his blood cries from the ground saying, justice, give me justice for being murdered, rightly so. And that's what the Old Testament speaks of. It speaks of the justice of God in his law and reminds us that he is a holy and a powerful and a glorious and an other God. But it's provisional because it's pointing towards the God for whom His own blood speaks better than merely justice. But we've got that great picture of uh, justice and mercy and love kissing at the foot of the cross. So that God's justice is not denied in dealing with our sin. But his love is not left out of the picture. But rather absolutely embraces everything that he is. God is a consuming fire. But uh, what we have in Christ uh, is so much better than the partial revelation of the Old Testament, which these believers were tempted to go back to. And we need to remember that. That we stand on the rock that is Jesus, who has done it all for us, who loves us hugely, and who's taken the price for our guilt and will forgive us our sins. So we need to, uh, as I close, we need to, uh, we need to be still. I think, and listen 
to this Christ. This is his word. This is his living word. And uh, listen to his loving, I just say this quickly, listen to his loving warning. See to it, verse 25, that none of you refuse him who speaks. If they didn't escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? If you go back to Hebrews chapter 2, we've got that same warning given again. Hebrews 2 verses 2 to 4, which says, For if the message spoken by angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him and by the Holy Spirit distributing gifts according to his will. So the the warning is the gospel. It's the salvation that was first announced by the Lord himself. And that is his great... The gospel is God's great megaphone. And it says, listen to what, to listen to my love, listen to my grace, listen to what I've come to do, listen, because I love you, listen, because it's the only, that is his great, the, the, Jesus nailed to a cross and then resurrected on the third day is the great megaphone of God. Listen to his solemn warning, loving warning, and also listen to his solemn promise in 26 to 28, which reminds us that everything will be shaken apart from his own kingdom, which will remain forever. Speaking of a universal future uh, judgment, a sifting, a deconstruction of this created world and uh, of this universe, where only his kingdom, his lordship, his people will remain. Stands very much against the, the, the modern notion of a weak, impotent, Useless God who can't do anything. It's a picture of a God who says, I will not be moved. And those who are standing on the rock will also not be moved as we put our trust in him. That's what the encouragement is to a people who were tempted to give up and walk away. Said, please don't do that. Please don't do that. What I offer you and what I am to you is much, much better than anything else. And so he gives, in conclusion, his awesome revelation. Therefore, since we're receiving a kingdom that can't be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and fear and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Can I say with all the reverence and with all the love and with all the grace that I can, I think what's been said here is don't mess with God. In the nicest, most graceful kind of way. We can't mess with God. We can't abuse his grace and ignore it and stick our fingers up as if it's irrelevant and important. We as people, as Christians, we have great privilege and he promises us and enables us to walk on level paths as we, we don't abuse or ignore or reject him. The cross speaks of judgment. It speaks of grace. And there is a further judgment to come. And so we live as believers in reverence and awe. We worship him because of who he is. I, I think that's very hard. It's very difficult to do. Particularly in a society we live, which is a very gallus society, 
kind of cocky, sophisticated, got no time for the idea of worship or adoration or awe. And uh, I have to say that I think that's misplaced. I think it's deceived and it's deceptive. And we need to ask the question, where are we standing in our relationship with this astounding God of grace who is a consuming fire but who was nailed to a cross? Where do we stand in relation to him? And how are we running our Christian life? Is Is it always hugely up and down for us? Is it always a complete battle? Is it never a level place for us? Are we always considering giving up? Maybe that we hear his voice for us and that we wholeheartedly just plunge, plunge into the sea of his grace. And receive his forgiveness and the joy that he brings and the wholeness and the life to the full that he is offering. As our maker, our Lord, he knows how we tick. Fix our eyes. This is a great verse, the great theme of the whole book. Fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Amen. Let's bow our heads briefly in prayer. Lord, I ask and pray that you would bless uh, us as we think about the word that you've given to uh, the church, the word of God that we by faith recognize and see as transformational is a good news message and uh, deals with the, the knotted hearts that we so often hold on to and uh, that uh, atrophy as we grow older and uh, become harder and become more impenetrable. And we pray that we would allow your grace to Loosen our hearts to forgive us, to renew us, to transform us, so that we uh, follow you and serve you with wholeheartedness, and that we don't always find the Christian life, therefore, uh, an uphill struggle. But may we find that you raise up the valleys, that you bring down the mountains, that you enable us to soar on wings like eagles, to run and not be weary, to walk and not faint. That impossible path of Christian living. By your grace, enable us so to do. And may that grace attract people here today who might not know you and who may uh, think of the gospel as something that is constrictive or controlling or... um, divisive in a wrong way but may they hear the voice of Jesus Christ uh, offering his grace and his love and recognize uh, who the person of God is to be a God who is just absolutely just and right in all his judgment leaves us separate from him unless uh, we are redeemed and uh, saved by Jesus and may we fall at the feet of Jesus for our hope and our future for we ask it in his precious name Amen